Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Sydney live stream. It's a pleasure for you to be joining me that I can join you this morning. And uh, thanks for tuning in. We do serve such an awesome God. Praise God that He has plans, that He is in command. He is uh, the one that we look to in all seasons of life, and we can trust Him to know our needs and to provide abundantly according to His will. So we'll be in James chapter 5, if you want to turn in your Bibles there. Let's pray. Oh Lord in heaven, thank you so much for this beautiful day. Thank you for your mercies that are new every morning, for great is your faithfulness. And thank you for the opportunity to praise you, to, to meditate on your word, to learn from you. And pray that we would all draw near to you now, that we would humble ourselves in your sight, you would lift us up. Please uh, reveal yourself to those who are hurting, to those who are struggling, to those who are ill, that you would bring recovery and healing, to those who feel far from you, Lord, that they would turn their eyes to you and draw near to you. And thank you that you will draw near to us that you are faithful, you have not forgotten us, and you have good plans in store, both now and forever, in Jesus' name. Amen. It's cool how you can look back on your life and remember, I guess, fond memories of the past. I remember being in year three, and the teacher, for some reason, as was her custom, needed to leave the room for a short period, and we're all told, stay in your seats, read, do you think that everyone stayed in their seats and read? No, that didn't happen. Uh, the teacher leaving was very exciting to some of the kids who promptly jumped up from their seats and just ran around because they could. And there was always one boy who went to the window and he plastered his face against it. And he, he was looking for when the teacher was coming back to warn everyone so they could quickly run back to their seats in time before the teacher came in, all faces red and, and pretty obvious that they had not stayed in their seats and had been reading the whole time. But uh, we knew that our teacher was not going to be away for very long and that the teacher would soon be returning and opening the door. And Christians ought to be the same when it comes to Jesus, that our lives will soon be over. We are going to walk into that door of eternity into the Lord's presence before we expect it. Now, in our year three class, we didn't get a prize for obedience to remain in our seats and read while the teacher was away, but God will richly reward all those who endure to the end, to those who trust him, who look to him in prayer, who confess their sin and lead others to him. God has rewards for those who trust and obey. In the previous chapter, James reminded us that our life is like a vapor. It's here one moment and gone the next because Jesus is our life, the remaining time here on earth is to be spent um, in submission to God, drawing near to Him in faith, putting off the sin that defiles us, and when we humble ourselves before the Lord, He will lift us up. God draws near to those who draw near to Him. And James, throughout the book, has been pointing out some sinful inconsistency in the lives of Christians, and he's not done. This chapter is full of the same um, he, he has told us how we can use our mouths that bless, blesses God to curse others made in the image of God, that we can boast in pride, and we're to, we're to honor God with our wealth. That's one thing we're reading today, that we ought to be patient, prayerful, and we might be deceived to think that one person's life or one person's response to struggle doesn't make a difference, but it does. One person who chooses to follow Jesus in faith and obedience to Him 
will have an eternal impact, not just on their own lives, but on the lives of others. We begin in James 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. The old cliche says, if the shoe fits, wear it. That's appropriate here. No one's excluded from the warning of trusting in riches rather than God. So it's not, James is not just calling out the unbelievers or the believers. He's saying, hey, if you've put your trust in wealth, if you've kept back wages by fraud, know that God will judge you, that he is coming and he will make right the things that have gone wrong. Those who live in luxury, who celebrate their success in Jerusalem, they would soon be plundered like the rich man in the parable Jesus told who was not rich towards God. He had crops that were too big for his barn. And he's like, I'm just going to tear down that barn and build another one. And God said, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. And whose things will they be that you've provided for yourself? The clothes eaten by moths, the precious Uh, silver and gold that were corroded and turned to dust, they would be of no value. They would not help them. And James calls out masters who withheld wages from servants. Their profits are stacking up, but their, their people that were mowing their fields, the ones that were harvesting their grain, they were going hungry because those wages were withheld. And this was prohibited in Deuteronomy 24, 15, and 16. Workers expected to receive their wage that day because their survival depended upon it. And the masters that had these great storehouses were not paying them on time. And so God would take vengeance. God would require it at their hand with interest. This is what's written in 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10. After saying that godliness with contentment is great gain, Paul says this, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, it's no sin to be wealthy, but the desire for wealth can be a snare. It doesn't matter if you have wealth or if you desire wealth. Greed and a desire to be rich, it causes a snare. Uh, The love of money, it's a root of all kinds of evil, And it causes people even to stray from the faith. So it's important that we are on guard against uh, having a love of money and a desire for wealth. The reapers who had their hearts set on receiving that wage and went home empty, their cries would be heard by God. They would be answered in due time with vengeance. They, They had no way of taking their masters to law. They didn't have the means or the ability to do so, but God would see their case God would see justice done. God said this in Deuteronomy 32, 35, and 36. Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is no one remaining, bond or free. 
So it's like calamity is at hand, rich man, you who trust in your wealth, you who transgress the law. God would see your fall hastened. This term that's used in James, Lord of Sabaoth, in James 5, 4, it means Lord of hosts or armies. It's the idea that God is in command, that he has all the hosts of heaven under his control. He can rule, he judges, and he will enforce his rule of righteousness. So he's not like a, uh, a lawgiver who makes a law and leaves it to other people to enforce. He will enforce it. He will see it done. He says, I will judge my people. And that includes Christians at the judgment seat of Christ. He has compassion on his servants. He will help those who cry out to him, who leave vengeance to him. Back in James 5, verse 5. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. James points out the folly of those who had greed for gain, who oppressed their fellow men in the pursuit of wealth and pleasure and luxury. And he compared them to the calf fattened by that grain in the day of slaughter. Uh, farmers know they have a day put months in advance of when the day of slaughter is going to be. And they begin to adjust the diet of the ox or the steer, or the cows toward that day. So they'll get them on a particular diet. They want to fatten them up so that when the day of slaughter comes, uh, the meat is prime. It's perfect. Now that steer, as it's eating all this extra food, because they'll give it a, an extra bonus amount of grain and, and, and then they'll restrict their movement. So they're getting all, all fat and sassy, eating all that grain and grazing. And they're thinking, you know, could life get any better than this? And I'm looking forward to tomorrow when I can just feast. But tomorrow is the day of slaughter. And so James is saying, guys, you're like, you're being fattened up for judgment. Understand what's happening. The steer had no idea what's coming and you have no idea what's coming because the judge is at the door. Be ready. The wise who hear the words of God, they will repent. They will amend their ways. They will humble themselves before the Lord like Zacchaeus did by making things right. The things that he had stolen, he returned plus some. And he received Jesus gladly into his house and into his heart. Knowing many of the brethren were going through hard times, they were some of those workers who weren't being paid. James told them to be patient. They hadn't received their just due. They were suffering. But he says, therefore, because God is the God who hears the prayers of people, because God is a just judge, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And he uses this picture of the farmer who's patient for the early rains in autumn, they would prepare for sowing, and the latter or later rains in springtime as the grain develops. Both rains are needed to uh, prepare the soil so that it can be amended and turned, receive the seed, begin to sprout, but also to fatten the, the uh, grain heads as they ripen. In Hebrew, geshem is the word for rain, but there are different words for the early rain and the latter rain, which is yore and malkosh. 
The farmers prayed for rain when the land was dusty and dry, when there was really no signs of life. There were thorns and it looked barren and there was not a cloud in the sky, but they were to look to the Lord because it was the season for rain and he had promised to send the rain. So they were to rely on him and look to him to provide that rain so they could eat, so they could have stores and have another harvest when they sowed what was uh, reaped. The farmers, they needed to depend on God and God trained them this. He taught them this, that you need to look to me to supply your needs. The Lord is at hand. We can develop a theology that puts all kinds of obstacles to Jesus returning today. We think the season is far off when God is at hand and he can require your soul of you today. The farmer waits patiently for that grain to grow and know that our Savior is coming and his reward is with him. Barns packed to the rafters and a good harvest does not compare to the riches of the kingdom of God he gives freely to those who love him. We have eternal life through faith in Jesus. Moving to the land of Israel from Egypt brought huge changes to the lives of God's people. And James has addressed this letter to the Hebrews who would have known this. The, the big differences from living in Egypt where you have the Nile to moving to Israel, which is a very dry and arid land. The Nile, it was used for transportation and irrigation. I read an article today that 95% of people in Egypt live within a few kilometers of the Nile. It's a huge part of uh, irrigation for that land. Now, if you turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 11, starting in verse 10, we'll see that God told his people that going to Israel was going to be different than living in Egypt with the Nile. Deuteronomy 11, starting in verse 10. And we're going to be going to a few Old Testament passages today to look at some historical things and hopefully bring great encouragement to your hearts. Deuteronomy 11.10. After, it says, For the land which you go to possess is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and watered it by foot as a vegetable garden. But the land which you cross over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water from the rain of heaven a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning of the year to the very end of the year. And it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine and your oil. And I will send grass in your fields for your livestock, that you may eat and be filled. Take heed to yourself, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you, and he shut up the heavens so that there be no rain, and the land yield no produce, and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. So unlike in Egypt, where the children of Israel use the Nile to irrigate their crops, like you just take their foot and drag it along the ground and make a furrow with their heel to water with that river that's just flowing through at all times. God said, you're going to a land that's hilly, it's rocky, and you need to wait for that early and latter rain. I will see that it rains in season, that the land is watered, the grass grows, you can have livestock and crops, you can harvest the grapes and the wine, the, uh, the grain, 
It says that God cared for the land. His eyes were always on it. And if the rain did not fall in its due season, it was a reminder for the people to look to the Lord, to pray and to examine their hearts and consider their ways. Have we gone after false gods? Have we um, been foolish to lay aside the worship of God and start worshiping the Baals? Because the Canaanites worship Baals. That was the God of uh, fertility and rain. And the consequence of idolatry, what did it lead to? Drought, to famine, to lack. And so often people continued to pursue futilely the worship of the Baals when God was the one who sent the rain. That land that was just dry and barren, it was a picture of their spiritual condition. King Solomon, he prayed this at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8.35. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance." God was teaching his people to rely upon him, their sovereign God who is good, whose eyes were always on them, who cared about them and would provide for their needs. That God knew what time it was, like it's time for rain. God knows. God would send it. We go to the tap for a drink of water. We usually don't pray when we're thirsty. We say, I'm just going to get up and go get a glass of water. But God's people, they're to look to him to supply those needs. The God of heaven. The God whose eyes were on them. James says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts. Our faith, it's to remain resolute, fixed. Our eyes are to be fixed on Jesus regardless of the trials. Think of the Olympic Games and all the Olympic athletes went through in preparations for the games and then competing in those hot conditions and the pain and the struggle. I mean, people are crossing the finish line and not even making the finish line and collapsing from the effort they're expending. And they're going for the gold to receive honor they cannot carry with them to the grave. Those medals that they earn, they will pass to someone else. They may be on eBay someday. Their names will be forgotten. Did you know, I started looking at some of the, the ancient um, sports in the Olympics. They keep adding new ones. I'm like, well, what's some sports that have just been there for a long time? And boxing was one of them. You know that Australia has had five Olympic medals in boxing. And I would be surprised if you knew all five, right? So the point, I, I don't say that to minimize the accomplishments of earning a silver, or a silver gold, or a bronze medal, but to say that those people that were the best in the world, their names are not remembered. Their achievements are unknown to you. And just to show the supremacy of the rewards that we have from God that are eternal, that cannot be lost or forgotten, and we get to receive that honor and glory from God. I mean, that we could even say that. It sounds crazy, but that's God's promise to us because he loves us. Know that God loves you. He knows your name. He has not forgotten you. He is not far from you. Draw near to him. James says, do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. It's a compelling picture that I would be complaining about a brother or I'd be complaining about a situation. 
while the judge is at the door listening to what I'm saying. He's about to come in. He's about to make a judgment, but he's listening to what I'm saying. And I'm having a whinge. He's the one who sends the rain in season. And it's like, I am complaining about how dry it is to somebody else. And I'm not even looking to him, not even thinking about what he's doing and what he's planning. Not resting in his goodness and provision. So I'm, I could be charging God with doing the wrong thing and not being on time when God has created time and my life and my breath is in his hands. So instead of grumbling and groaning against others, we ought to look to God in faith and pray to him. Pour out our hearts before him. He will send the rain. James began this letter in James 1, 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. When we're tempted to grumble about what's going wrong, we ought to patiently wait on God to set things right. Most importantly, that he would set us right, that we would walk in righteousness as he is righteous. We would be holy as he is holy. See, God is using the trying times. He uses the trial. Uh, something that we just want over and done with. He wants to do something enduring and lasting in you, in your character, in the way that you respond to difficulty. The farmer, he waits for rain to soften those clods and to water the crops so he can be sustained. God wants us to break up the fallow ground of our hearts, to surrender ourselves to him and his will in patient faith. See, we're working towards different ends at times. We just are thinking about the here and now, but God's thinking about our future and for eternity because of the plans that he has for us. Year after year, you think of that farmer. He's learned to trust God that at this time, he's looking out over his land and he sees it dry, thirsty, no water anywhere, not a cloud in the sky, but he knows God will send the rain. God is looking at this land. God has not forgotten. He knows what my needs are in the future. He knows how many cows I have, how many children I have. He is able to do it and he will do it. I know he will. Looking around, everything seemed dry and dead, but there was a promise of new life in God. They were to believe and trust him, to patiently wait for him. Now, I don't know what you're going through, whether it's illness or family trouble or afflictions of all times. As a nation, we've been through fires and floods and now a pandemic that looks to drag on and we can complain and lament our current state. Or we can wait patiently on the Lord who draws nigh to those who draw near to him to help, to deliver, and to provide for all our needs. Continuing in James 5.10, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. When we suffer, isn't there consolation in knowing that things could be worse? And when we come to a point where we're like, things could not be worse than this. I can't imagine anything worse than what I've experienced. We can consider the sufferings of others. Like the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord and those people suffered 
quite a bit. They faced all kinds of torments. We read of them briefly in Hebrews eleven thirty six through 38. It says they were mocked. They were scourged, arrested, imprisoned, stoned to death, sawn in two, were slain with a sword. They wandered around the deserts alone. They were in mountains and dens with no place to call their home. It was a lonely experience. They were without the multitude of comforts that we are available. If you can hear this message today, you have technology and access to electricity and things that they never had. We have clean water and sanitation and medical care and how we have God's promises written for us that we can read in our own language. Through the ages, men and women remained faithful to God. They patiently endured great suffering. And it says, we count them blessed who endure. Why? Well, because by faith in God, they attained a glorious resurrection and a pre- into the presence of God. They are assured of that, that they will go to heaven to be where he is. And don't we have that same promise? People who don't trust God or believe his word, and likely we've fallen into this trap as well, we look at the pain and the suffering in our lives or what other people are going through, and we can malign God for it. The Bible teaches us that God's ways are above ours. His thoughts are higher than ours. We're looking at the surface. God is looking at the heart. We think of the temporal. God is looking to the future. He sees, the temp- he sees what's happening now as well. It's not like he's only looking at the future. No, he sees now and he sees the future. Reading of Job's suffering brought up here, it makes us wonder how any good could come from what he suffered. But God had a particular end in mind that's laid out here. It says to bless him twice as much as previously at the end of Job. And now that God is very compassionate and merciful. That was the end God desired to bring out of that whole suffering of Job is that God is very compassionate and merciful. We see a person suffer and it's like looking over just a barren wasteland, and you see half of your flock is laying dead in the sun, and we just say, what good could come from this? How could this be of God? How could this be allowed by a good God? Sowing the seed in season on those, in that dry land, with, without a cloud in the sky, under that searing heat, it was an act of faith. When there were no aqueducts, there was no irrigation It was like, this grain is going to be worthless unless God sends the the rain. But I'm going to go out there and I'm going to sow this seed, believing that he will bring the rain. He will bring the harvest. And see this promise in Psalm 126, 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, isn't that an incredible picture? You have a farmer who's weeping over his barren, dry land, these barren fields with no visible fruit, no promise of a harvest, but the promise of a faithful God who would send the rain. And so sowing, believing, and then surely rejoicing, bringing sheaves with him. It shows us that it's not enough for us to claim we believe the rains will come. We still need to go out into the field. We need to sow the seed. We need to clear the brush. We need to plow the ground. We need to prepare for the rain. So 
we can do that by looking to the Lord, by trusting Him, by believing, by praying to Him when things seem bleak, when things seem hopeless, when we're in pain. If you believe God's Word, we ought to be patient and persevere without grumbling because the Lord is at hand. God's eyes are upon us. And His end is that we would know and the world would know He is merciful and compassionate. And our our words and our actions ought to reflect that before we see the end. Before we've come through the trial, we know in the middle of it. When it is dry and barren and seemingly hopeless, we have a hope in God. We can cling to Him. Where salty tears fell in mourning over the dryness, God would send rain, cause good fruit to grow. And what was true in a physical sense is true in a spiritual sense in our suffering, because out of our suffering comes great fruitfulness. Job could not have known that hundreds of millions of people would have read of his life and the things he suffered and his endurance and counted him blessed and taken comfort from God. Now, my initial intent was to press on through this, but I felt uh, led to linger here a little while to, to expand more upon this point. Psalm 126 that I quoted before, it's a psalm of ascent. There were many psalms of ascent, songs traditionally sung as the pilgrims uh, returned to Jerusalem to present themselves before the Lord, to celebrate those feasts. The bitterness of being in captivity in a foreign land, it made that opportunity to go up to the temple, to go up before the presence of the Lord, even more sweet. It was like a dream come true for them. And I think about how our time apart during COVID restrictions, it will make the time when we're able to gather and to sing together, to have activities, to enjoy each other's company in person, it'll make it even more sweet when we can finally do that again. Now, these were people who were going up to Jerusalem singing, who at one stage had hung up their harps because they were going to Babylon. It's written this, it's written in Psalm 137, verse 1 through 4. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there, those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? After the Babylonian siege, Jerusalem fell. It was horrible with the death and destruction, and people suffered. The temple was burnt with fire. The wall was torn down. They suffered the loss of family, their friends, their their lands, everything. It was all gone. Access to God was gone. And for 70 years, they were looking at captivity in Babylon. They're sitting down by the rivers of Babylon. This water's flowing past them. And they hung up their harps. They're like, we're done celebrating. We're done singing. How can we sing? I don't know how I'm going to get through this. The Lord will help. How can we sing when we're not at home? When we're not in our land that God's given us? We're not content to sit by this river in Babylon because we want to be where we're relying upon the Lord to send the rain, but we can't be there now. 
The land is desolate. They're not the only ones who felt this way. There's people all throughout scripture who have had the joy sapped from their lives because of suffering and pains. And I know some of you feel this very same way. Jacob, he sent his son Joseph to check in with his brothers. They sold him to slave traders, right? They kidnapped him. They sold him. And they worked up a story. They took his coat of many colors. They tore it up. They put some blood on it and said, oh, we found this coat, dad. What do you think? If you turn to Genesis 37, 33, you can read how Jacob responded. And he recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without a doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Based upon what Jacob could see, his son was lost. All he could see was this torn, bloody coat. He believed his son was dead. He mourned, he wept, he refused all comfort. He tore his own clothes and he said, I will go down to my grave mourning my son. But God had plans that Jacob didn't know about. Jacob had been sold as a slave. He wasn't dead. God raised up Joseph from being a slave in the house of Potiphar to be a great ruler in Egypt, second in command to Pharaoh. Jacob's dying days, he says, I'm going to my grave in sorrow. That's what he felt at the time. But he was reunited with Joseph in Egypt. And his deathbed turned out to be a place of blessing and celebration when he was reunited with his son. You can read in Genesis 48, starting in verse 8. Then Israel, that's Jacob, saw Joseph's sons and said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, please bring them to me and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has also. I apologize. God has shown me your offspring. Israel's eyes were dim with age, but his eyes saw clearly the mercy and grace of God. Where he's like, I didn't even expect to see my son ever again, but here you are. And here are your children. Because God is faithful. There's another person who had a literal long dry season, Naomi of Bethlehem. There was a famine in the land of Israel, usually caused by a drought. She, her husband, and her two sons, they went to Moab for a season. Over the course of 10 years, her husband, Elimelech, passed away. Her sons, who both married, they also passed away. And when the famine was over, she returned with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, to Israel. So if you turn in your Bibles to Ruth, Chapter 1, starting in verse 19. She returned back to Bethlehem, but she wasn't the same. She wasn't the same woman when she returned. Ruth 1, 19. Now the, now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they came to, had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. 
I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Then they came, now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Naomi, that name means fair and pleasant, but she was not fair and pleasant upon her return. She was angry. She was bitter. Her, her eyes had cried so many tears. I mean, there's no mention of her even weeping here. She was just bitter. She was hard. She was upset because God had afflicted her. She was angry at God. She felt empty. She felt like she had lost everything, that her God was against her, and that she had lost just everything that she had lost was all that was on her mind. But again, God was faithful to look upon Naomi and Ruth as their provider and redeemer during that barley harvest. Ruth goes out to start gleaning in a field, just happens to come into the field of Boaz, who is a kins, who, was, who could fit the role of a kinsman redeemer. They later were married and they had a son named Obed. If you turn ahead to Ruth chapter 4, verse 14. It says, then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord. Who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also, the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There's a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. This angry old woman who's embittered against God. He blessed her late in her life in a way she could not have expected. He never left her. He blessed her. Naomi and her grandson Obed, they shared a special bond of love only made possible through God, who's a restorer of life. He's a nourisher all our days. Amazingly, from Obed comes Jesse, comes David, and to Jesus. Jesus Christ came through this line, our Savior. When life seemed over and not worth living, Jesus came and gave us eternal life. When there were no clouds visible on the horizon, there was no life uh, visible to us. There was no hope of a future. When the clods were rock hard, when our hearts were embittered against God, God sent the rain. God sent his son. God enabled Jacob and Naomi to endure and receive blessing, to see pain and bitterness of death swallowed up by rejoicing in new life and fruitfulness to God, made possible only by God. Now, I know many people today have suffered and are suffering. People have lost loved ones. They've received a grave diagnosis of a life-threatening illness. They have heartaches over family matters. They're weary and fighting temptation to sin and overwhelmed with thoughts and struggles. Every day we hear bad news. You know, the numbers for COVID seem to be going up. Just today, reading about a war in Afghanistan and an earthquake in Haiti. 
And like a dry and thirsty land, we can be waiting for respite and relief and some refreshment. And it seems nowhere to be found at times because of how we feel. And it seems like, like the hope that's promised in God seems far away. We don't see it. We don't see how it could change. And some of you weep with grief. Others have cried so much you have no more tears. But the scripture tells us those who sow in tears will reap in joy. Are you willing to look to God today and entrust your future to him? Are you willing to hope in him? Like that farmer who's patient and he waits for the rain. That God's going to send it. God will bring fruit from this. He will bring life where there's only deadness. The God whose eyes are always on the land of Israel, who sends the early and latter rain. This is what he says in Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Those who humble themselves before God in faith, looking to him, they are seen and known by God. Isn't it amazing that God who created the universe and all living things, he's chosen to take up residence in the hearts of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. We're called to be like that patient farmer who sows the seed, who looks to God, who prays for rain, resting in him. Establish your hearts and be patient for the Lord is at hand. Blessed are those who endure by faith in God. For we will see and our lives will proclaim his intended end that God is very compassionate and merciful. We may hang our heads. There may be days where we hang up our harps, but the Lord will not hang us out to dry. He has sent his son and he has sent that Holy Spirit his Holy Spirit, that living water that flows in and through our lives. And Psalm 126.6 remains true. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you that you do see us. You know us. You know our needs even before we ask. And Lord, forgive us when we have doubted your goodness. Those times we have not believed that we could see your goodness in the land of the living. We've hung our heads and we've hung our harps. And we've ceased praising you for your goodness because of the pains, because of the bitterness, because of our lack and loss. And I thank you, Lord, that you are ever faithful that you are enthroned in the praises of your people and you look to us, that you draw near to us and we draw near to you, that you love us and you know our name and you're at the door. Thank you that you're never far away. Thank you that you can come into our lives in an instant and heal the bitterness, that you can send that rain and moisten that dry ground. You, as the ground of our hearts is broken up, Lord, you can send that rain and cause your word to be fruitful that you can make an oasis what was once a barren wilderness and that you give us hope in a hopeless world. And thank you, Lord, that you are very compassionate and merciful. 
Thank you that you're with us. You will not leave or forsake us and that you hear the cries of your beloved. Lord, we cry out to you and we praise you. We worship and magnify your holy name for you are good and your mercy endures forever. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.